Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, Beauty Production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard, podcast episode number 47. I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And I'm Nick Sarasso. And Nick, we again, we're at episode 47, inching so close to episode 50, the big 5-0 for us. I don't know about you. But I'm pretty excited to reach number 50 if we get there. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, certainly so. Uh, It's always an exciting point. We're getting closer and closer to it. Uh, I think when we get there, we'll be closer to the NBA playoffs or midway through the playoffs. So that will be a fun episode. And I'm sure we'll have a special occasion for episode 50. Yeah, like you said, the NBA playoffs are right around the corner. There's only about three or four games left. Um, in the league, and there's still plenty of playoff spots up for grabs, which we'll get to in a little bit. We're also going to talk about the NCAA Final Four. I'm pretty sure both of our brackets are invalid at this point after the wild weekend that occurred uh, in the Elite Eight. And then, of course, we have a lot of MLB news to get to. One thing I want to touch upon before we start, though, Nick, it's very rare that while we record, something crazy is going on in a baseball game. But as of right now, the Cleveland Indians have a team no-hitter going on against the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, so it's going to be fun to keep our eyes on that while we record the podcast. Obviously, we'll break the news if the no-hitter is complete. But right now, they are in the top of the eighth inning, I believe. Trevor Bauer did a fantastic job through seven innings. However, he was at 116 pitches when he came out of the game. So the Indians really couldn't put him back out there. So we're going to keep your eye on that. We're going to keep our eyes on that for you guys, and we'll let you know if you're not watching the game what happens in that game. But we could have potentially have a first no hitter of 2019, Nick. <laughs> a no hitter alert of a team no hitter. We're going to take the point where do no hitters really matter anymore? Oh come on! I mean, well, that's going to be up to be a discussion for a different podcast. <laughs> but so as we get started, let's go ahead and get into the NBA roundup, the LeBron James saga continues not only is he going to miss the playoffs for the first time since what 2005 i believe uh lebron james and the lakers announced earlier last week that he will be shut down for the rest of the season um they're saying that this will allow his groin to uh fully heal um so first question is for shutting him down nick we don't have to get too much into this but i think we can agree that this was the right move to shut down lebron james right oh yeah this was an easy decision you know he had been hurt all season long he missed some serious time and the Lakers just you know they're not in the playoffs the entire West is officially clinched they can't make it why play them it's as simple as that Uh, you are not focused on this season anymore if you're the Los Angeles Lakers you are focused on this offseason what you can do during the draft what you can do during free agency if you can trade and get Anthony Davis so long 2018-2019 season for the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's relevant. Yeah, you see, this is a scenario where usually I'd get angry and I'd say, you know what, like LeBron James should just play out the year and all this other stuff. But LeBron is getting up there in age. 
And I feel like if you're the Lakers, you know you have this guy for three more years after this season because I believe he signed a four-year deal with them. You have to take care of LeBron James. And part of that is not letting him play any unnecessary games that he doesn't have to participate in. If the Lakers aren't going anywhere, all of a sudden this whole last week becomes kind of irrelevant, especially when it's not just LeBron James that's out. You know, Brandon Ingram is out. Lonzo Ball is out. It's one thing if the the team was mostly healthy, but when the team is as injured as they are, there really is no point. It allows you to look at some of the other bench players, like you said, to keep and see who's worth hanging on to, who can you use in a potential trade. So the last two weeks still have some value for the Lakers, just not as much as they wanted. But I totally agree. Let LeBron heal. Because, again, he is older now. And I'm not knocking him for anything. But, you know, he is older now, so he's going to need more rest. Um, And I just think it's a smarter move. These games don't matter for the Lakers. So why risk LeBron going out there and injuring his groin even further or his knee or something and having him, you know, God forbid, miss more time to start the season next year? Good move to just shut him down. And but Nick, I'm going to we'll piggyback go off of that for just one more say. Uh, you know, yes, LeBron James shut down, but this is what all teams in all sports should do. It's as simple as that. Uh, NFL Week 17 should never matter to anybody unless you are about to make the playoffs. If you win, you get into the playoffs. That's the only team it should matter for. All other teams, if they're out, shouldn't be playing Week 17. If they're in the playoffs, should not be playing Week 17. MLB. Same thing can be said about hitters or pitchers, especially pitchers. Why let them throw at times? There, there was an argument where I made where you should shut down a couple pitchers at, at points because there was just no lead to continue on further if a season's over for you guys. We see the same thing in college football. Guys don't play unless it's a championship, even though it's like their school Rose Bowl or something. This is so much of an easy decision for sports. I think we forget about it, and we make a little bit more of, wow, he's he's done for the year, and they're sitting him out, and tickets, it doesn't matter. Focus more on net season and staying healthy, because the last thing you want is a silly game that doesn't matter affecting the year after. Well, I don't know if I agree with fully shutting them down, only because I do believe that, for example, for football in Week 17... I would love for them to at least get half the game in or a couple snaps. That way you're not just sitting there. And and that way you're at least somewhat fresh going into the playoffs. Um, For baseball, again, it's a little bit different. And I could see where you're coming from, but I'm not the biggest fan of just shutting down someone completely because then they have to get it going again for the playoffs. Again, it's a little different if they don't make the playoffs. But for some guys, they have incentives in their contract. So it's a little bit, oh, well, I want to reach that milestone. Or, you know, for some of them, depending on how many innings they throw, it helps their arbitration case. So there's some scenarios where you can't just shut down a pitcher because you might be costing him dollars and cents um, at a further point in time in the future. Um, On a side note, speaking of the Indians, as we did before, they got out of the eighth inning even though the bases were loaded. So it is a team no-hitter through eight innings, three outs away from the first no-hitter in MLB in 2019. But going back to LeBron James, Nick, what were your biggest takeaways from LeBron James' first season in L.A.? Uh, that, you know, LeBron James still played great. It's still LeBron James. He's still one of the greatest players uh, in the lead right now. He's still the greatest player of all time. There's not really any question marks for me on that one. Uh, the only takeaway I have is, you know, he doesn't have anybody around him. And it's just a matter of figuring out the roster around him of who will be there next season. So it's 
the only person you know that's coming back next year is LeBron James. You don't know about anybody else on that team. Uh, so there's so many question marks that surround the Lakers, and I'm not too much focused on LeBron as I will be focused on Magic Johnson. Will they keep Luke Walton? Uh, will they go Jason Kidd for coach? What are they going to do? Are they going to try and trade the entire team away for Anthony Davis? Can they lure somebody that's a free agent this year, either Kyrie Irving or Kevin uh, Durant or you know Kawhi Leonard? There, there are so many different options out there. Uh, what is it that the Lakers will wind up with? Because there, there's so much lack of depth and especially lack of shooting and shooters on this team that that is more of a question mark for me than anything of LeBron James. His stats still in 55 games were, what, 51% field goal range, 27.4 points, just one, just point one difference from the year before. Same amount of shots. His three points a little bit down. Uh, and, you know, obviously his free throws are always something that we never see happen. But everything else, still the same. Eight plus rebounds, eight plus assists. What are what are we looking? That's not LeBron James. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean my well, my biggest takeaway, and it's kind of both sides of the ball here, is on one side it's a team still needs LeBron James, right? That really that week, those two weeks that he was hurt with the groin injury, and the Lakers played okay, right? They they didn't play terrible, but they didn't play great. To me, those were the, the big two weeks in which the Lakers really fell off and it hurt like their playoff chances, right? I mean, yes, it was messy around the trade deadline with all the rumors about half the team being traded for Anthony Davis, and I still believe there was some sort of chemistry issues there. But to me, those couple of weeks when LeBron was out with the injury, it still showed me that teams need LeBron James to win, that LeBron James still is a key player. A lot of people were saying he was washed up or he's getting older. You know, I don't really buy that because when I look at it, the Lakers still didn't make the playoffs and it was because of how bad they played when LeBron wasn't on the court during his injury. So that tells me they still needed LeBron. However, one thing that I did notice, though, is that LeBron can't carry a team by himself anymore. And I say this because, you know, no man should ever just carry the team by himself. But in this situation... You know, this isn't 2007 when LeBron can carry the entire team on his back and take the Cavaliers to a finals. You know, LeBron needs the help at this point of his career because he can't do it on his own. Because sometimes he needs to take games off. Because sometimes he can't play all 48 minutes of a basketball game. And that's okay because of where he's at in his career right now. I'm not knocking him. I'm not saying shame on LeBron that he can't do this. But we're at the point where LeBron James needs somebody else there. So like you said... Magic Johnson needs to get somebody else to help relieve, relieve the load off of LeBron James because we're getting to that point where LeBron just can't do it anymore. And I hate saying that because I feel like I'm knocking him for it, but I'm really not. I'm just stating a, tr- a fact here where LeBron at this point in his age and, and he's trying to preserve himself for a couple more years and play as long as he can, he can't grind this out by himself anymore. He needs another player that's going to help carry his team to the playoffs, to the championships, if they wish to get that far. So, Nick, for LeBron James, do you think this season showed anything of any kind of weakness for LeBron as he heads into year two? A lot of people say that his age is starting to show. A lot of people are saying that his game is slowing down. Do you buy into any of that as he heads into year two next year? 
the only thing I think LeBron James struggled with is his ability to relate to the players around him. Uh, I think LeBron has always had an issue and struggle with young players. When he came back to Cleveland, what was the first thing we saw? Uh, Wiggins traded to the Timberwolves for Kevin Love. Uh, so that's one of those things. We saw how many issues he had with Mario Chalmers, which was hysterical. But uh, what did he connect with? Dwayne Wade. Bosh, obviously. But where does it go further than that? Shane Battier. Who did he connect with this year? It's guys like Lance Stevens, Rajon Rondo, Tyson Chandler. So he's not really having this connection with the young players on his team. I think that was his biggest struggle for him. And that's something he's going to have to improve on. This is a business mindset person. This is an entrepreneur. This is one of the greatest talents of all time. The greatest player of all time. And you see so much more going around with LeBron James outside of the NBA, where a lot of the guys in basketball are on his team are what? Fortnite, sneakers, big baller brand, and that's about it. So they don't relate to LeBron James at all, and it's very hard to for them. Yeah, I got to agree with you there on that one. For, you know, I think LeBron has to understand that holding on to past players like Dwayne Wade, you know, like Kevin Love, like those guys are on the older side of the, of the ball, you know, holding on to those guys may not be the best option. You know, maybe LeBron should get down with the youth movement and really embrace these young players that are coming out of college as young as they are. And I think that also goes to, you know, it kind of coincides with the one and done rule about, you know, players coming into the league a lot younger and not fully developed. And guys like LeBron James may be frustrated with something like that because these kids you know, aren't at their best technically when they leave college for the first, after the first year. But that's really just the nature of the game right now. One thing that I took away, you know, from LeBron is that I feel like he's still trying to rush back from injuries. And again, at this point in his age, I feel like he shouldn't have to do that anymore. And I wish LeBron would just, you know, like trust the system a little bit better, if that makes sense. Um, you know, take your time coming back from the injury. Let the young kids try and get by by themselves. Because to me... If you develop a mentality of, oh, well, we're only going to win when LeBron is here, then these kids are never really going to, you know, take control of the ball. And these guys are never going to be able to help you uh, win these ball games. So I just feel like I wish LeBron would still, you know, give up some kind of control, something that obviously he's not used to doing because he's always the main person on a team. But at the same time, I feel like it's necessary for LeBron, especially as he gets older, to really kind of give up the ball and either trust in his coach or trust in his teammates. He didn't really do that, in my opinion, this year, uh, especially with Luke Walton, who's probably going to be fired at the end of the year. Um, but for LeBron, it's let go of the past, like you said, and invest more in the future in terms of the younger players and doing the best you can uh, to move forward with them. But it certainly does feel weird that LeBron James is not going to be in the playoffs this year um, in the NBA. So, playoff spots are still up for grabs in the Eastern Conference, Nick. Surprise, surprise, with that division, with that really that conference being um, mediocre compared to the Western Conference. Sitting at the number six seed is the Detroit Pistons, at the number seven seed is the Brooklyn Nets, and the number eight seed is the Orlando Magic, and sitting on the outside looking in is the Miami Heat at number nine. But, Nick, the Heat are only a half a game behind the Magic and the Nets, who both have the same record, 
with three to four games left to play. There is certainly a lot on the line for these four teams. So based off of those four teams, Nick, let's start with who ends up with the last three spots. So the last three spots, who ends up? We're just in the schedule. You've got the Heat having to play Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Toronto, Minnesota, Orlando's in this all, but and by far has easier matchups. Uh, for me, I'm going to do the Magic or, uh, are going to be able to get in, and the team that's in trouble here is going to be the Miami Heat, and there's going to be no postseason for either Dwayne Wade or LeBron James. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I think Detroit is a lock to make it. Um, I just think they're the better team out of these four. Um, they're a team that underperformed all year long, um, but I think they can definitely slide in there easily. Um, and I do think the Magic get in too. Uh, like you said, easier schedule. If you're Miami, I mean, you have to face Toronto. And, and who is the other team as well too? Toronto, Philadelphia, Minnesota, and Brooklyn. Their only yeah. home one is Philadelphia. I mean, and that and that's a real that's a really tough matchup for the Miami Heat. I mean, you're looking at two playoff teams who they may not be starting their starters, but also Philadelphia has a lot to play for too because they're going to want home field advantage. You know, come playoff time, they're going to want to lock up that third seed. And so, I don't think Philadelphia is going to necessarily take it easy on Miami. Um, so, I think the Heat are going to have a really really tough time, and they face Brooklyn, which would be a good thing for them, but. I think Brooklyn's going to be really hyped to try and get back into the playoffs as well, too. Brooklyn's going to be pumped up for that matchup. I think that game against the Heat is really going to determine who's going to get that last spot. And it really sounds funny who's going to, like, you know, who's ends up with the last three spots because really what we're saying is, hey, who wants to get shellacked by the best three teams in the Eastern Conference? Because really that's what it is. I mean, if the Magic get in at the eighth spot, they're going to get murdered by the Bucks. If the Nets get in at the seventh spot, they're going to get murdered by the Raptors. If the Pistons can force a matchup with the 76ers, Maybe, maybe you're looking at a chance that series goes five or six games. But really, do any of these teams have a chance at even taking down their counterparts if they get in? Uh, you know, you look at it. Uh, Giannis got hurt a couple days ago, uh, but there's no difference. I, I think Orlando poses the biggest threat to anybody out of the four teams we're naming because Orlando has just been red hot lately, uh, but. A lot of times we equate that to other sports having more meaning. Uh, since March 14th, Orlando's only lost twice. That's it. And they've put in really tough games. They're 8-2 and two lately, one of the hottest teams in the NBA. And their two losses have come on the road to Detroit and on the road to Toronto. So you take that for what it's worth because they're beating very... Uh, decent teams up there with Philadelphia, Miami, and the uh, Indiana, but overall, no. None of these teams are basically anywhere near the top of the Eastern Conference, uh, and they're going to get beat up. But that being said, it's still good to get there. Teams like Orlando and Brooklyn, who haven't been there in a very long time in their struggles, it's nice to be in the playoffs at that point. A team like Miami, who didn't really have a shot, has Dwayne Wade in what is really his final season. It's nice to get there for a couple more games. Uh, Detroit, all the money that they're putting in. They have to get there type of thing. So, uh, But one step uh, in the right direction, three teams could be going. Uh, but four steps back after these games. 
And you touched upon something really good. It'll be good for teams like the Nets and the Magic to get back in it, especially since it's been so long for them. Uh, the Heat, Dwayne Wade's final season. So, Nick, that brings up my next question. Perfect segue. Who is it more important for that they grab a playoff spot between these four teams? This is the easiest choice. Detroit is by far the easiest. Why? Look at the payroll this team has compared to anybody else. This is a team that traded for Blake Griffin. Okay, Blake Griffin, who's costing them 35 to $40 million a season. You add that with Andre Drummond, another guy very expensive on the team, 23 million. So you look at that and you say, your, your backcourt of these two guys, your big men, that's going to be there for you for the next few years. That's that's everything of what your contracts are to. That matters more. Because last year, Detroit missed. And still having all these large contracts. They have to make it this year. There's too much heat that could be on them for doing the trade for Blake Griffin. For not making the playoffs with two great bid men. And it's just going to point them in the wrong direction entirely. So I totally agree with you on that point, especially for a team, like you said, that spent a lot of money. I'm going to go the more emotional route. I'm not going to choose my home team, Brooklyn Nets, although it's going to be very important for them to make the playoffs too and a good sign for them, honestly. But I'm going to go with the Orlando Magic only because, you know, this is a team that made the finals way back when, when they had Dwight Howard. And they weren't going to win because Dwight Howard was the only reason why they were there, right? You know, a couple years later, Dwight Howard wants out of Orlando. It becomes a whole big drama. And and really, the Orlando Magic never rebounded since then. Um, I think the Orlando Magic finally have a good young nucleus um, now when it comes to Aaron Gordon. Uh, they drafted Mo Bamba, who I love just because of his name and because I'm a big fan of the song Mo Bamba. Um, it, to me, and, and they also have a good head coach in, in, in Vogel, who used to coach the Pacers. And, and really, to me, the Magic have suffered enough in terms of losing a star in Dwight Howard and really rebounding nicely to try and get a playoff spot here. They really put their nose to the grindstone. You know, a team like Brooklyn, they've given away draft pick after draft pick after draft pick. And for them to finally make the playoffs, honestly, as a Brooklyn fan, I'd be so relieved. But also, Brooklyn's been playing really good basketball since the start of the season. Not good enough to be a top five team, but good enough to where I expected them to make the playoffs. And honestly... As a Nets fan, it's kind of sad that it's coming down to the last couple of games because the Nets were in a good spot where they probably could have been a guaranteed playoff spot back when they were a 6 or a 7 seed. So it's kind of on them now that they're on the brink of almost getting eliminated. So to me, for the Orlando Magic, I didn't think the Magic were going to make it this year. I think they were still well far away from making the playoffs. If you would have asked me, if you would have told me that the Magic only would have lost two games, like you said, since March, that date that you pointed out, I would have called you crazy. I wouldn't have believed that. So I think the Magic have definitely earned it. They played their asses off. And I think, you know, that extra push that they have is really going to mean something when they make the playoffs. So I'm very impressed with the Magic, and I think it's more important for them to make it, especially since, you know, we're talking about a team, again, that made the finals with their star player and Dwight Howard, who was supposed to be the face of their franchise. The guy wants out because he doesn't want to be there anymore. And all of a sudden, this team is back in the playoff contention um, for the first time in a long time. So good job by the Orlando Magic. And wrapping up the NBA talk, 
Again, no LeBron in the playoffs for the first time in over 10 years, but there's still a lot of exciting storylines when it comes to the Western Conference and the potential Western Conference matchups. Right now, if the season ended today, it'd be the Warriors against the Spurs, the Nuggets against the Thunder, the Rockets against the Clippers, and the Trailblazers against the Jazz. Now, again, the Spurs are only like a game behind the Thunder, so a lot of things can can uh, switch back and forth within the next three to four games left of the season, Nick. But these are really good matchups on paper right off the bat. And considering who we could also get if things swing in the next four games, Nick, there are a lot of exciting matchups here. Are there any that you're looking forward to or that you hope change within the next couple of days in the standings? So a couple days ago, I think the stand-in showed uh, my favorite one, which was Golden State playing the Thunder. One versus eight. Two was Denver versus San Antonio, uh, and Houston versus the Clippers. Two high power and offenses, mainly on scoring. And then four, which would have been, I think, a great one: Portland versus Utah. But with all Portland injuries, I don't think they'll be able to get past the first round, no matter who they play. I don't see them having enough depth for that. Uh, that was my hope. I, I think all those are the perfect matchups for each team. And it puts into the best game. Uh, certainly, Denver versus Oklahoma City, which is what it is right now, would be a very entertaining one. But I don't think it gives you as much of a story as Westbrook, Paul George versus the uh, the Warriors. And for the opposite, Denver Spurs, we saw the love that they had even when Pop gets ejected like 63 seconds in. Uh, and both teams very very good at home. Not as great on the road. Denver, extremely a great team. Uh, so I, I really want those type of matchups, especially for 1 verse 8, 2 verse 7. What it is right now, I hope it reverses. Yeah, I agree with you. As much as I would love to see Pop go against the Warriors, isn't there just something better about the Warriors and Thunder? I don't know, Nick. What, what is it? Is it because... I can't put my finger on it, but there's a reason why I want to see the Warriors and Thunder in the first round. Oh, is it because Kevin Durant used to be in the Thunder and he kind of spurned the, the the Thunder for the Warriors? I mean, who doesn't want to see that matchup? Who doesn't want to see a matchup with the potential for the Thunder to upset the Warriors and move on into the next round and eliminate the defending champs? Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think if they face each other, I think the Warriors win that series. But... Is it not more entertaining to watch Russell Westbrook go against Kevin Durant in this scenario? Um, so I'm hoping that flip-flops, uh, because I also think the Nuggets and Spurs can be a really good defensive matchup. Um, but another series that I'm looking forward to, that this might be a lock to happen, Rockets and Clippers. Um, you know, coming into the season, not a lot of people predicted the Clippers even making the playoffs, and yet they're a sixth seed, right? Everybody was talking about how good the Lakers are going to be, and everybody was forgetting about the Clippers. But also, if the Clippers go against... The Houston Rockets, obviously the obvious storyline there is Chris Paul facing his former team. Remember, that did not end on good terms when Chris Paul was there. So there's a lot of high emotion and high grudge matches, um, you know, when it comes to these playoff seating. And I'm just really excited because there are a lot, a lot of good games that can go on here. Um, You know, and... Pretty much since the since the Western Conference is a lock, Nick, do you think there are any teams here that can really challenge the Golden State Warriors? You know, I'm hopeful is the, uh, the better way to put it. Uh, as far as teams that I think that can challenge them, it's Denver and Houston in the uh, Western Conference. 
Denver extremely good at home. I feel like Denver would need to be in home court advantage. Houston just missed out last season. Obviously, the roster is not the same as it was last year. But if they can have a healthy team, healthy Chris Paul, a healthy three-man uh, three core, and James Harden isn't touching it, the ball every single play, I think Houston has a shot. But easily right now, the favorite is Golden State the entire way until they can prove elsewise. Yeah, I think the obvious choice is the Denver Nuggets. I think they're a very physical team that plays them physical. Um, and... You know, I think in a seven-game series, the Nuggets can definitely give the Warriors some problems. I don't agree with you on the Rockets, though. I understand the Rockets did it last year, and they pushed them to seven games, but Paul got injured, and you can argue that if Chris Paul was healthy, maybe they would have eliminated the, the Warriors. But again, very different roster this year. I feel like James Harden had to carry the load more this year than he did last year. Um, so I don't have as much faith in the Rockets going into this postseason as I did in them last year. One team that it's a shame that someone got hurt, in my opinion, was the Trailblazers. I think if, Juice, if, uh, if Joseph Nurkic didn't end, you know, didn't get that season-ending leg injury, I think they could have definitely been a challenge for the Warriors as well, too, because we've seen the Warriors struggle when they faced up against legit big men teams. And when Nurkic is on the court, they have some serious size in the Trailblazers. And between Steph Curry and Damian Lillard, Lillard is really a really good defender, and I feel and we've seen Curry struggle at times when he gets defended at a, at a against a high level opposing point guard. Kyrie locked him up pretty good a couple of times when they played each other in the finals when it was Cavs and Warriors. So you know, seeing Damon Lillard on the on Curry would have been great. Although with the injury to Nurkic, I don't think they'll have enough now to try and make that push. So I think really my only answer is the Nuggets, and. The problem with that is that if things do flip-flop here, you know, I don't even know if the Nuggets can get past the Thunder. I don't know if the Nuggets can get past the Spurs. I feel like the Nuggets are going to have a tough time in their first couple of matchups than the Warriors are. So we might not even get to see Warriors and Nuggets when it's all said and done. Moving on now to the NCAA Final Four. The Final Four is set. Auburn, Virginia, Texas Tech, and Michigan State. Nick, I know you had all those four in your bracket, right? Yes, I um, was one of no. No, I, I, I got screwed. <laughs> just as much as I thought it would. Um, it, it, I'll just say this. It was a hell of it. College basketball made it so entertaining this year. I think 18 points separated all the games to get to the Final Four out of the Elite Eight uh, group, which was the lowest all time. We saw constantly phenomenal close games and I mean, you think of Auburn, their first game, um, again, uh, their first game against New Mexico. It came down to a couple free throws to, uh, at the very end, where they couldn't hit the three free throws in a row to tie the game, and then a missed three that was wide open. Auburn's that close to being not near the Final Four, but a first round exit at times. So that's that's how close. It is, and it was great to see some great Cinderellas uh, coming through this year, and I'm just happy Gonzaga didn't get in. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I think this NCAA tournament really summed up the season, though, right? Because we've seen so many great performances this year from so many different schools that are not the usuals, right? We didn't, you know, it wasn't just Gonzaga. I know we always talked about Zion, but it wasn't just those guys, right? We talked about. Jay Morant in, in, in Murray State. You know, we talked about 
how good Auburn was. We talked about how good Michigan State was. I feel like this tournament really reflected it because, you know, when your four number ones are Virginia, UNC, Duke, and Gonzaga, and three of them are not even in the Final Four, UNC didn't even make the Elite Eight. I mean, Nick, that's that's incredible. That just goes to show you how many strong schools are out there nowadays where the fact that we had a 12 and a 13 in the round of 32. I mean, or you know, even Oregon, how long did they go before they ended up losing? I mean, you're not supposed to see these things, and yet we saw it this year. So I really feel like the tournament has been a lot of fun because we're seeing things that we just haven't seen before or that we're not supposed to see. Um I am disappointed, though, if you if you do your bracket through ESPN like I did, they give you the highest amount of points you can score is 320 in each round. I scored a zero in the Elite Eight because none of the four teams I had going to the Final Four are currently in there. So that's pretty crazy. So to you, Nick, which one was the biggest so-called upset? And I don't like calling it an upset because to me, if you're in the Elite Eight, you deserve to be there. But to you, which one was the biggest upset of those matchups in terms of getting to the Final Four? I think the biggest surprise for me uh, was Michigan State. Uh, when I looked at Auburn, I, I had talked about them. They're a great three-point shooting team, and if they can hit their threes, th- they can make a deep run into this tournament like any other team because they'll always be in a basketball game. So I'm not going to take the five seed. I'm going to take the two seed, not because they upset it, dude. But because you look at who they've had to go through, obviously Duke is a tough round for them. But the injuries as well. You know, they they lose Langford early on the season, and they're still one of the top 10 teams in the country. And that's a huge shock. Then Nick Ward goes down, and it's like, okay, how many guys can they lose at this point? And, and Ward slowly came back, but he really wasn't the same guy. So the amount of players that had to step up for Tom Izzo in this team to get to the Final Four, I think is incredible of Michigan State because I never was high on them to begin with, and they are by far the biggest surprise for me. Yeah, I'm going to roll with Auburn. Um, Like you said, this is a team that was on the brink of elimination in their opening game. Um, uh, To me, for them to be a fifth seed in the Final Four, you just don't see it. Um, you know, based off of history. And, I mean, all these guys. Virginia is the only number one seed left. And then you have a two in Michigan State, a three in Texas Tech, and again, a five in Auburn. Um, you know, how many times have we seen the Final Four just be all four number one seeds? And it's like, oh, that's lame, although we expected it. I mean, it's amazing the fact that Auburn is even here right now um, playing in the Final Four. And to me, that was really one of the most shocking ones uh, when it's all said and done. But, Nick, going back to what I was saying before about how it's not the usual suspects here in the Final Four, was this a good thing for NCAA that the usual teams did not make the Final Four? Folks, this is a terrible thing for the NCAA. You think they want Duke out of the NCAA tournament? You think they want Kentucky out? Or North Carolina? You you think they want to go another year where North Carolina and Duke never play each other in the tournament? These two teams have never met in March Madness, in the tournament, in the championship, in the Final Four, in any part of it at all. No, of course this is terrible for the NCAA. What do they get? They get Auburn. Okay, 
Auburn's good, but they're not a name brand attractor. Virginia's great. That's one that they needed to hit. They get one number one seed. Texas Tech, okay, you get more of an outside region. Michigan State's a big name team, but considering the options, you'd take Duke over Michigan State every single time. You would take Kentucky or North Carolina over Auburn every single day of the week. Texas Tech, okay, that's nice, but the fact that they uh, could have had Gonzaga, who's been there lately a lot more, or even further along, a team that they eliminated prior to that, how about Michigan? How big of a team is Michigan over Texas Tech? Uh, the Sweet 16, I think the NCAA had to love it because there were so many great powerhouse teams, so many top teams left in the country, so many big-name uh, college schools that would sell on TV. Now, it's not as much. It's, it's nowhere near what it could be, uh, where the biggest-name school is Virginia and Michigan State. Yeah, I. So, it's good and bad. It's bad because you know damn well that the NCAA wanted Duke to win the whole entire thing. They wanted Zion to be to be the one cutting the net. Um, it's just more money for them. It's good for their pockets. It's good for TV. You know, it would have had really high ratings if Zion was cutting the net down. However, I think this is really good for the competition of the NCAA. I mean. I'm a fan of that. I'm a fan of parity in the leagues. I like that knowing that any team has a chance to win the whole entire thing. And that's what we're seeing this year, a more competitive slate. That is not the same schools dominating over and over. That other schools are doing a good job recruiting, even though when they're not as well-known, right? That Duke and Gonzaga and that Kentucky, even though we know people are still going to choose them over other schools, that there's other schools that are out there that still have good basketball programs besides these guys. Don't get me wrong. I'm fully aware that the NCAA is probably really angry that Duke is not in it or UNC or that we won't have Duke and UNC in the finals to battle it out. But when it's all said and done, this is a really good thing to have different people make the league. Um, You know, you see it in baseball all the time, how there's always a bunch of of different teams uh, that are making the playoffs. So why not for the NCAA? Um, You know... For again, for parity reasons, it's a good thing that a lot of these teams are are different in it. No, so, all right, I'm going to jump on that one. I doubt it. I doubt it. All right, you just said MLB. You think the MLB wants the Royals or the Yankees in the World Series? Oh no, no, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that. Which the, one's that, better for baseball, the Royals or the Athletics or the Yankees well, in There's the World Series? There's a difference between what's good for baseball. And what's good for MLB in terms of the league? If it's for the league, then yeah, they want the Yankees. I mean, the perfect example was last year, right? The Astros were the defending champions. And how many primetime games did the Astros get in the American League Division Series against the Indians? None. All the primetime games were Red Sox versus Yankees. Well, of course. And the Astros, I mean, and I understand it. I understand it from a viewership point of view. But where's the respect to the team that was the defending world champs that made the playoffs again? How often do we see the world champions from the year before not even make the playoffs the year after? It's good for the league to have numerous teams go out there and and compete and have different teams competing. You know, it's good that we're seeing the Brooklyn Nets make the playoffs after how many years this year. It's good that we see the Orlando Magic make it. You know, it's good that LeBron James doesn't make it in a way because, you know, it's it shows that the league is competitive. 
However, it's not good for the NBA that LeBron doesn't make it because there's no there's no eyes that would have watched it only for LeBron watching it this year. It's not good for the NBA when three teams in the Eastern Conference are the only ones that have a real shot of winning a championship. It's not good for the MLB when the Yankees don't make the playoffs or the Red Sox come in last place. Yes, for the league, it's not good. But for the sport, it's really good to have a lot of different competitive teams. I'm not saying that the league thrives for a Royals-Mets World Series where the Royals beat the crap out of the Mets. They obviously would love it the other way around. They would love a Subway Series World Series. They would love a Philadelphia Yankees World Series. But it's good for the sport when it's a lot of different teams that you don't expect to make it when it's all said and done. In a sport that is struggling with the idea of the one-and-done coming to an end, and possibly college basketball is going to change, and the biggest tournament of all ceases to have a team solely based around freshmen, I think that's trouble. When well, is it though? I mean, we, we both agree that they should get rid of the one and done. No, because this is what always happens. In the, uh, the No team, take Duke as an example. No team has had two guys who, who score over 50% of their points get to the Final Four, or win a championship in NCAA history. It was a good way to put Duke out off of uh, your championship based on that one stat. That doesn't mean anyone was going to not, but what does it tell you always about the tournament? The veteran teams are always going to have the edge. Well, Virginia was more of a veteran team after they got knocked out the year prior immediately, but Michigan State, more of older guys. Ward is an older guy. Langford, even though he was injured, is, is I think a sophomore or a junior. Auburn's more, uh, much more of a older team than a younger team. Gonzaga has been built around that for the past six years of just being, you know, older and older, and a lot more guys staying until their senior year. We don't see as many guys from this. There's a reason we only see Kentucky and Duke players going in the top like ten of the draft every single year. And this year, Duke is a great example. You're going to see three of their guys go in the top ten. I think you see four. I think Jones goes as well, too. Not in the top ten, though. Eh, maybe. Debates for the future. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, no, th- this will never be good for for a sport, especially one that's written by TV deals, written by the idea of school programs. It will never be good when the main the main ones are not there. It's never good when earlier this season there were tickets being sold more expensive than the World Series in baseball between UNC versus Duke, and neither one of those two schools are there, especially Duke. Every uh, Duke not being there is the biggest uh, issue that the NCAA should be upset about more than any other school. I mean, I know they're probably upset, but I, I don't think they should be. I think the fact that you have a team that, you know, like you said, it's not just freshmen. I think that just speaks to the strength of the programs that are out there. And, hey, maybe it encourages kids to stick around after one year um, to help develop their skills. I totally understand it from a financial point of view, how these kids are getting screwed um, when they don't leave after their first year. But development is also really important, too. You can't really learn in the NBA. Um, you can learn in college, though, on how to play good basketball. But I think to me it's very hard to learn on an NBA level and trying to catch up. But some guys aren't there yet. That that's just that's the same thing as everything. 
There are some guys that don't need it, some guys that need it. Uh, everyone will easily say Zion Williamson does not need college basketball. Yeah, he has, he's one he of the very improved, few players. He has improved a thousand percent by going to Duke. But for anyone to not believe that he needed Duke in order to improve further is silly. Uh, Jay Morant is the opposite. He's a sophomore. He wasn't what he is right now. Carl Edwards, Purdue, wasn't what he was earlier. Uh, LSU uh, Waters is another guy, guy from uh, Virginia. Uh, the list goes on when you talk about guys that need it. But the, the same goes vice versa in college football. Uh, Lawrence, Clemson's quarterback, he's a freshman. He can't go for another two years. He could be the. He would have been the first pick in this draft this year. Easily. And he'll be the first pick in two years, too. He'll be the first pick in two years. He would be the first pick next year if he was allowed to go as well. But other guys do need those extra years. So there is a difference between players at times where it's like, okay, some guys need a couple extra years. Some guys you just know they're going to be a star. They just got to wait till they can get there. Uh, so, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. I'm probably not going to watch it as much as I would have. Uh, and I'm more interested in Auburn versus Virginia by far than I'll ever be in Texas Tech versus Michigan State. I'm just saying not everybody is Zion Williamson. There are a lot more people than you think that need to go back to school for another year to work on their, their basketball developmental skills. Um, so as you said, heading into the Final Four, who is moving on to the NCAA title game? It's Auburn against Virginia and Texas Tech versus Michigan State. Nick, give me who... Give me the title game matchup. I would love to. I would love, and I think these and the favorite should be considered Virginia. But the fact is, Auburn is a great three-point shooting team. They're in every single game. Virginia doesn't really have that offense to go toe to toe with Auburn, and if they can't stop them, which is going to be extremely tough to, you could. I could honestly see, and I do have Auburn winning this game. Uh, the only thing that concerns me is the long break. And I think that favors Virginia by far than it favors Auburn. But I'll have Auburn going to the finals. And Texas Tech has played phenomenal defense. What they were able to do against Michigan and what they were able to do against Gonzaga, especially Gonzaga, and how well offensively put Gonzaga has been all season long. For them to have their second most turnovers this season, their second worst field goal shooting team uh, for the season, all coming in the Elite Eight game. Uh, You take that and you ride with it. Uh, the fact that Michigan State will never be fully healthy, uh, it will hurt them at the end of the day. But Texas Tech, they have been on fire this entire tournament. I'm going to take the two hottest teams and put them up against each other, Texas Tech and Auburn. And I'll give Texas Tech the advantage. But again, a lot of it, I'm giving a lot of love to Auburn. I wouldn't be shocked if Virginia's able to take it all. So I'm going to agree with you on the Texas Tech one. I think if you beat a team like Gonzaga... You can beat a team like Michigan State. I think that gives you all the confidence in the world to take on Michigan State. I think Texas Tech wins this one rather easily. Not that it's not going to be close, but I think they can win by five or six points um, in this game. Again, I just think they're really confident right now. And if you beat Gonzaga, who you know is one of the t- top-tier teams in NCAA, um, you're going to get past Michigan State. On the flip side, I'm actually going to roll with Virginia. Um, I understand Auburn has great three-point shooting, but for Virginia... I feel like a big, 
you know, weight was taken off their shoulders when Duke got out, when Gonzaga got out, when UNC got out a couple of rounds ago. Because for Virginia, this is a team that got out, right, by a 16 seed a couple of years ago. This is a just team that really – Just last year. And this is a team that really struggles when the pressure is on them sometimes. And I feel like for Virginia, knowing that they're the best team left – out of these four teams, that has to give them a confidence boost. And if it doesn't, then shame on them. But I think Virginia can is going to be able to dispatch Auburn. I think the Cinderella story, it's funny calling them a Cinderella story when they're a number five seed. But, you know, the, the Cinderella story of Auburn, I think it ends here. I think this is a situation where the better team wins, the better overall team. And I really think that's Virginia. So I have Virginia, Texas Tech. You have Auburn and Texas Tech going into the final NCAA title game. Moving on now. Texas Tech winning for mine. You have Texas Tech winning. I have Virginia winning the entire thing. So from getting out last year to the 16th seed, the champions this year. Uh, So there you have it. Nick has Texas Tech and Auburn with Texas Tech winning. And I have Virginia and Texas Tech with Virginia winning the NCAA tournament. Moving on now to MLB news. Ronald Acuna. Jr. got in on the fun with the extensions, getting an eight-year, $100 million extension, Nick. For those of you who are not good at math, I went ahead and did it on the calculator. Twelve and a half. That comes out to $12.5 million per year. A lot of backlash when this move was announced. A lot of people that were for it, a lot of people that were for against it. Nick, was it a smart move for both sides? And if it wasn't for one side, which side got the bad end of the deal? I think at the end of the day, the early contracts are always going to favor the MLB team. Uh, that's just because of arbitration and being under team control. And you've talked about like guys like Blake Snell only getting like $15,000 of an increased bonus for you know winning the AL Cy Young last season. Uh, having said it's $12.5 million, uh, as much as that'd be a huge boost in his payroll from what it is this year, uh, what it could be in the future when it is arbitration, you're, that's the very difference of it. And you're talking about a couple of years of free agency. Atlanta's got to be so happy that they have this move. And they have their guys like Freeman and Okuna locked up long term. Uh, by far, this advantage went to Atlanta. Still, congrats to Okuna. But for getting you know money at a young age and you get some guarantees and you get life taken care of early... But at the end of the day, when you talk about this going past his arbitration years and going into a couple of years of free agency, it's always going to favor the MLB team this early on. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I really like the I like the deal for both sides, honestly. Um, you know, I understand the backlash that Acuna definitely could have gotten more. Whether he, when you know when he hits the open market, I think he could have gotten more in his arbitration years. But I like this for Atlanta because, like you said, they have Freeman in place. And what this does is I feel like it nips it in the butt when it comes to arbitration saying, you know what, we're not going to worry about us going back and forth on how much you should make. We're going to give you $12.5 million every single year for the next eight years because we believe in you. We believe that you're worth $12 million. Uh, you know, Let's put it here. And especially since they have him for $12 million, I think Acuna is going to be a fantastic player. So I think he's, you know, it's going to be a cheap price for him. What it allows Atlanta to do is to be flexible in other departments of their team, right? It allows them to spend money knowing that only $12 million is going towards Acuna. So it helps them put a better team around him and Freeman. Um, but also I feel like, you know, it's it's a gamble too because Acuna, you know, last year was his first year. There's, you know, there's a 
chance that Acuna could be a flop, Nick. And you know, what if Acuna has a bad year this year and then just digresses from here, and yet you're paying the guy $12.5 million? So I think it's a bold move by Atlanta after the first year to pay the kids. So I'm going to completely disagree with you. We're not even also talking about why this is a major steal. There's two club options on this contract. It's an eight-year, $100 million, but it really is a 10-year, $124 million contract because there's no way in hell Atlanta's not picking up these two years. Yeah, cer- certainly. So that that's the part that really concerns me, though, because when I was looking at it, I'm like, okay, he's 20 years old, eight years, still takes him to his age 28 season, and he could still get paid however amount of money he's worth at that point in time, right? But the fact that he has the two club options – Really takes him to age 30. But still, <clears throat> I think this is still a good deal for the Braves and Acuna. You never know. Maybe Acuna likes in Atlanta. Um, you know, he strikes me as a kid that loves to play baseball. He's glad he's in the majors. So maybe it's not about money for him. I just, I like the flexibility that it gives Atlanta to know that, okay, we have our star here for the next eight to 10 years. Let's keep building this team up from the ground and build around it. Because, you know, he is their Tripper Jones, right? He is their Andrew Jones. He's the new face of the Braves. So to get him in place for there, to me, is a good is a good plan. They put him in place. On the opposite end for Acuna, could he have gotten more? Sure, but I think they're, you know, it, it's good for him to get a base amount and not have to worry, what am I getting in arbitration this year? Oh, what am I going to do for this year? I mean, look at the Mets. You know, DeGrom went from making, what, $1 million to $17 million or something like that? That's a drastic pay change. You know, for Acuna, it's nice to know, okay, I'm getting this every single year not worrying about what's going to happen the year after. This was a deal where he took for safety. He'll get his other contract in year 30, which he won't get. And a player that, you know, has the potential when he enters baseball to be on Bryce Harper-like contract, just let that fly by. At the end of the day, uh, Okuna has cost himself over $100 million. And that's the bottom line. Because this is going to go to his age 30 season. The man will be lucky if he gets a five-year, $100 million contract range. I think that's a safe one to assume. Take it around there. Um, Maybe he gets a little bit more. But the fact is, if he was coming out of baseball on year 26 with a few MVP candidate years like he could have had easily within three years of his first three years of his new contract would be about that $124 million we're talking about. So this is a bad deal for Robert Acuna. He's still a hundred millionaire uh, at the end of the day, and he's richer than most people will ever be. But it know. feels weird, right? That we're saying, "Hey, you know, you just made a hundred million dollars. This is a bad deal." Uh, I mean, <laughs> I think I think a lot of people would say, "No, okay, I'll take the hundred million. This is one of those things where it's like, you know, we all we all look at it and it's okay. It's this is this is the change in baseball. This is just how teams are now screwing players over. First, we talked about how teams are screwing players over by keeping an extra year uh, on players by having them come up in like after April, and they get an extra year of service time, which is how it's hysterical how it's service time is the name of it. Uh, Then we have our next way of how we screw players over. We just give them a $15,000 raise. 
when they are Cy Youngs, when they are MVPs. And we'll use the excuses, oh, we don't have to do this. We were generous to give them the 15000 And you should grab a bunch of single bricks and start chucking at That's what snails should do, the ownership, and be like, hey, you need this more type of thing. Uh, that's your second way of how you screw over teams, uh, screw over players. Arbitration fights. I'm all for players getting more at the end of the day. This is one where the player got less, by far. And if this is how the new change of baseball is going to happen, where you get locked in till age 30, because Aaron Judge will be a great example of this when he comes in super late, and then he has his contract real late, and he won't get paid in the future a uh, serious amount. Uh, Robert Acuna, in the opposite way, came up at the perfect time, at a young age, and he's going to screw himself by using his contract and not betting on himself. Moving on now to the <laughs> Mets. <laughs> I mean, that's very, very... I mean, you're not wrong there, Nick. And I, I think the Aaron Judge one um, is an interesting situation because, you know, uh, it, there's never going to be a time where I compare Aaron Judge to Jose Bautista, really, except in the scenario where Jose Bautista, remember when he hit free agency, he wanted a contract, right? He wanted a long-term contract, and he didn't get it because he was 34 years old, 35 years old. And, you know, it's really nobody's fault, right, that Bautista broke out late. And you can't blame a team for not giving him a five-year deal when he's 35 years old. Same thing for Aaron Judge in a way where it's like it's not, you know, it's not the team's fault that you develop late and you came up to the big leagues when you're 26, 27. But what the Yankees could do is make it worth it now by tearing up the contract and giving him a deal that's worth it to really keep him until his age, what, 32, 33 season. For the Yankees, especially since they have the money, there's really no excuse for them to do that. Or for them not to do that. Yeah, it's... Uh, baseball has changed a lot. But I am really worried about, in the Aaron Judge scenario, I am really worried that the poor man is not going to get paid. Um, again, because of his age and because of the time in which he come up. It's a very interesting scenario to keep your eye on. Um, but even though I'm a Met fan, and I don't like the Yankees per se, I do worry that Aaron Judge is not going to get his fair share of money. Um, moving on now to the Crosstown Rivals, the New York Mets. Uh, Ken Rosenthal reported that the Mets have checked in on Dallas Keigel and Craig Kimbrell, but he said that it was just a team doing its due diligence. Makes sense. However, Andy Martino, Martino from Sportsnet New York has said that the Mets have been in continued contact with Dallas Keigel. So, with Dallas Keigel still not having a team, even though it's April 4th and the season is a week old, does Keigel make sense for the New York Mets, Nick? Uh, you know... As a fan, I'll say yes. Uh, there's nothing that says that's wrong. Uh, if the Mets are really looking to compete, you should put the best team out there at all times. And if Jason Vardis is the best thing out there for the team, <laughs> that's yeah, that, 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 that summed it up right there. Uh, the Mets have three core pitchers, right? Uh, from there... Uh, Steve Matt says his injury issues, and you worry if he's going to be able to play a full season. Uh, certainly, he has his full question marks. Uh, but you know, all of a sudden, if we're talking about a pitching staff that contains Jacob Degrom, Dallas Keitel, Noah Syndergaard, Zach Wheeler, and Stephen Matz, you're talking about a team that should be able to make the playoffs just on their pitching staff alone. Uh, it makes a lot of sense if the Mets can do that. I don't think they'll be able to uh, at the end of the day. 
this isn't going to be a, a player that they can just throw a one-year contract at. And I think that you're looking at a few years of a contract. And at that point, it will be, will the Mets be doing uh, taking Dallas title over Noah Syndergaard or Zach Wheeler? And I think that's the interesting debate on which one would you choose of it? Because if you're taking title on a possible four-year contract or five, you're pretty much throwing yourselves away from any possibility of Noah or Zach Wheeler. Yeah, I mean, I agree when it comes to trying to put the best team out there on the field. Now, I'm one of those guys who originally I didn't want Dallas Keigel. I don't think he, I didn't think he made a lot of sense for the Mets. The Mets don't really need him. However, at this point in time, when the season is a week old and it's clear that Dallas Keigel still doesn't have a team, I'm changing my tone a little bit. Why? Because, you know, Jason Vargas is not the answer for the Mets. Dallas Keigel is better than any other guys that the Mets can put in the fifth spot of that rotation. I like Corey Oswald. I like Chris Flexen. But Dallas Keigel's experience and the fact that he can be a second lefty in that rotation, besides Steven Match, who, by the way, is also always getting hurt, to me, that provides a lot of stability. And it's a lot more of an appealing option than Flexen or Oswald or even Vargas. Also, even though Vargas pitched well in his first start of the year, which don't get used to it, Mets fans. Please don't. Don't let it fool you. He still only went five innings in that game, Nick. And after the game, or even during the game, Gary Cohen was saying it, well, you know, this is what you're going to get from Vargas. And the same thing from Callaway and the pitching coach that, yeah, we know he's going to go five innings. It's like, why are we okay with him only going five innings? Why are we okay knowing that we're going to burn the bullpen every fifth day, especially when Callaway can't manage the bullpen to begin with the other four days of the week? It's a problem if Vargas only goes out there and goes five innings. So why not? Dallas Keigel is better. The only thing I will say, though, is that they should only do it if they can get Keigel on their deal. So at this point, would you go out there and give Keigel a one-year deal, allow him to come back to the major leagues, re-up his value so he can get a contract elsewhere next year, and the Mets benefit from it from adding a former Cy Young Award winner to potentially reach the playoffs again? You're assuming he's going to take a one-year deal on this, right? I, I'm, a, I'm assuming he's taking a one-year deal. He's not because... taking a one-year deal, though. He's had a one-year deal offers with Houston, and Houston has offered him two-year deal offers. He's not taking that. If he was going yeah, to take well, a one-year longer... deal, wouldn't he go to Houston already still? The longer this goes, you don't think the one-year deal becomes more of an option? No. I mean, that's the beauty of it, is that the Mets don't have to react right now. It's up to Dallas Keigel if he wants to play this season. The Mets can keep calling and saying, hey, you know, we're a one-year option, or about a one-year option with a team a team option or a, or a player option. I understand Dallas Keigel doesn't want to take a one-year deal. The guy should get paid. But also for the Mets, what I don't want to see them do is I don't want to, go, I don't want to see them go out there and sign him for three to four years, especially when they have someone like Zach Wheeler, who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. They have someone like Syndergaard, who's going to be a free agent in a couple of years, like Conforto, who could be a free agent in a couple of years. I'd rather see them re-sign some of these homegrown talents than go out there and spend on a guy like Keigel and get handcuffed and can't sign anybody else in the future. So the other question I ask is, how far should the Mets realistically pursue this? Uh, you know, if you can get them, you can get them. But if you can't get them for this one 
two-year type contract, I don't think it's worth it. Because... I mean, am I am I crazy though? Like that that should be the only scenario where, where the Mets pursue this, right? If it's yes, in a one to two only, year range, that's the only scenario where they pursue it. And I think they're just then that's where you hear talks of. Yeah, that's where you're doing your due diligence, and that's where Dallas Cattle says I want four or five years because that's what I'm looking for, and the Mets are out. That's what's just going to happen every single time. And to me, that makes the most sense. Moving on now to a series of topics. We're going to do a whole, should I hit the panic button or should you not worry? Um, a couple of teams have gotten off to horrendous starts, um, including the defending World Series champion Boston Red Sox. They lost today um, against the Oakland A's again, and they're off to a rough start. They're only 2-6 and six now on the season, Nick. Um, one of the worst records in the MLB right now. The season's only a week old, though, but if you're a Red Sox fan, are you concerned or not concerned for the 2-6 and six start? Uh, not concerned. Uh, this is still one of the best teams in baseball. Uh, the pitching staff hasn't been there to begin with. I think if you're talking about the Red Sox, you're more concerned of Chris Sale than you are concerned of the team in general. I think we just see a little bit of slow offense to begin and they ran into a cannon arm uh, with the A's. But the Red Sox should be fine. So I'm going to disagree just a little bit. I'm not fully worried. I still think the Red Sox will make the playoffs. Um, but you're Chris Sale, and you get rocked on opening night against the Seattle Mariners. That's not a good look. I really don't like this bullpen for the Red Sox. They have no bullpen. And if... I'm Craig Kimbrell. I'm laughing now at the start for the Red Sox saying, you guys need me. And if I'm the Red Sox, I'm slapping my head against the wall for not re-signing Craig Kimbrell. Um, this bullpen is awful. They need, uh, you know, they let Joe Kelly go too, who, you know, Joe Kelly is not is not doing that great for the Dodgers either. But the, the, the Red Sox have holes in this bullpen. So I'm not panicked. Uh, I'm not saying fans should be worried. I think they will turn it around. But if I'm the Red Sox, I'm regretting some of the decisions I made in the offseason um, to let some people go. For the Yankees, Andahar may need season-ending surgery on a torn labrum. Aaron Boone says it's still unclear that he might need surgery. However, Andahar is on the injured list. Giancarlo Stanton on the injured list. Troy Tulowitzki, you guessed it, on the injured list. Luis Severino is still on that injured list. And the Yankees lost two series back-to-back against the Orioles and the Tigers at home. Yes, they lost to the Orioles, the one of the worst teams in baseball, and then to the Tigers, who currently are probably one of the worst top five teams in baseball. Nick, worried or not about the Yankees so far in the start of the year? I can tell you this. I'm never going to hit the panic button when we still haven't wrapped up a single total of seven games. Uh, There's no reason any team should be panicking. Uh, you want to tell me Yankee fans are upset? Yeah, I read Facebook a lot, and I live in New York. They're 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 pissed. Shut up, you idiots! <laughs> no, well, again, <laughs> no, no, no. You you don't get any say, you Yankee fan. No. All right, let's get over this. I don't care how many injuries the New York Yankees have. I don't care that their injured uh, list payroll is higher than the entire Oakland Athletics payroll right now. Um, yeah, it's terrible on to hard to be out for the season. All right. 
Yeah, Troy Tillowitzki might be out for the season. I'm not saying he is. His injury's not, but it's Troy Tillowitzki, so this is going to take three months, fellas. Um, Gentalo's hurt. Good thing they got him for free, right? <laughs> but we're talking about a team that's still one of the best offenses in baseball. At the end of the day, you still have Aaron Judge. You still have Gary Sanchez. You still have Labor Torres, Luke Vol. Now, I'm not going to keep listing, guys. Yeah, you're missing a few core hitters. But how stacked of a Yankees team was this last season? The, the Yankees set the record in home runs, and I'm going to be worried about a couple guys missing the, uh, missing a few games early on in the season and one guy missing, and two guys possibly missing the season. No, I'm not. And on top of that all, it's the American League, fellas. It's the American League. There's like five teams to worry about, and the Yankees are one of them. That's it. You'll make the playoffs just because there's nobody else to compete in the American League. Uh, the the Rays, Red Sox, Twins, if you count the Twins and Indians, one of them will win the division. The other one will be sitting out doing nothing. Oakland and Houston. That's it. That's all the teams that have a shot at making the playoffs. We're seven days in. Nothing's going to change about that. No 7-1 Seattle. No 4-2 or 4-3 Orioles are going to change that. Uh, it's... We, we have nothing to worry about if you're an American League team unless you're one of the bottom-feeding teams that thought you had a hope in the world. Hey, man, don't count out those Orioles, man. That slugger Chris Davis with a C, 0 for 16 with 10 strikeouts. Don't count him out, man. Yeah. No, um, this is one where I'm not worried. Um, it's like you said, I think the Yankees are still stacked. However, um, you know, how many more names can they really allow, you know, continue to allow to get hurt, though? I mean, because... Yes, they have a couple injuries, but what happens if Sanchez goes down? What happens if Judge goes down? All of a sudden, you, when you keep adding to that list, um, you know, things happen. You know, there was a point in the season last year where not everybody was healthy. And yeah, the Yankees were good, but they were never truly what they could be. Imagine if all these guys are healthy at the same time, how scary the Yankees could be. And I think they should really look to get back on a level. But I'm not too concerned because Andahar is hurt, Tulowitzki's hurt, and you know who was starting at third base for the Yankees? DJ LeMahieu. DJ LeMahieu is a starting second or third baseman on 29 of the other MLB teams, Nick. So I'm not worried about the Yankees that much. However, I am a little bit concerned that they can't just keep lose, dropping guys like flies because um, then they're going to start looking like the Mets and then they can get a neighborhood uh, uh, medical wing. Let's just go through this lineup. Gardner, Judge, Volt, Sanchez, Bird, LeMahieu, Torres, Clint Frazier, Tyler Wade. Oh my God, they started Tyler Wade at the ninth spot. How could they? They're screwed. They started a random guy in left field the other day. I did not know the name of, and I was like, oh, I don't know who this is. The Yankees might be in trouble. <laughs> they might be in trouble. <laughs> Obviously, Clint Frazier's there. They're going to be there. Tuchman's going to be their fourth outfielder for the time being, and Frazier's going to be their third. With guys like Giancarlo and Aaron Hits eventually coming up when they're healthy, uh, th- there's nothing to be concerned about this team. The, the the way to be concerned about this team is okay. Um, the 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 offense may not be there because it's built around power and power based lineups, and the concern is you know they can hit four home runs, lose a game five four because all four home runs were solos, and that's all their offense. 
that's where you can get a little bit more concerned about is are they going to be able to get guys on base uh, frequently enough? And still at the end of the day, the answer is yes. So that, the biggest concern is still not a concern at the end of the day. I'm just saying one too many injuries and, you know, that's not how you want to start the year. So not concerned, but it's something to put on the radar that, I mean, it is funny to watch Yankee fans flip out, but yeah, it's, it's, it's different. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the, our, our Mets, uh, not to be biased or anything. Um, they've been winning, uh, even though they look dreadful today. Uh, they're four and two to, uh, they're five and two to start the year, but Mickey Calloway has made some awkward, um, bullpen choices to say the least in the first week of the season. Uh, I think Lugo has appeared in what seven, six of the seven first games of the year. Are you worried at all about Mickey Calloway's, you know, mismanaging of the bullpen? No, not really. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it, it, with managers, when it comes to bullpens and it comes to those spot situations where you're either going to be a god or a dunce. You're never in between with this. You're either going to be on fire with it or you're going to be complete misses with it all the time. And, you know, for the majority of this season, Callahan has been on par and done very well. You know, you're dealing with guys at times with like Juan Ladaris over Keon Broxton. And, you know, you can question that. But then all of a sudden... When you're down 3-2 in a game and then it's Juan Ladares hitting the solo home run to tie the game up. That's the difference maker. You're putting in the right pinch hitting spots. Uh, the order's doing very well for where it is right now. The Mets were able to bring up Pete. Um, <sighs> and they were able to bring up Pete instead of seeing him go into the minor leagues like we see way too often. Uh, so... No, I'm not going to fault him for a little bit of a bullpen issues. Uh, overall, the Mets have been playing fine. Uh, the only concern for me is the same concern like it was the previous year when they started off real well. Is what you said they're five and two, right? So that's seven games, and Syndergaard and Degrom have combined for four of them, which means over fifty percent so far have been from their number one and number two starting pitchers. And that won't be what it is long term. The same issue that it was last season when they started what eleven and one. That's more of a concern for me than you know manager. You know, I'm gonna take the opposite here. I'm a little concerned. I mean, you can't. To me, the bullpens, especially managing bullpens so early in the season, is one of the most important things that you can screw up. I mean, Gabe Kapler really screwed up the Phillies' bullpen last year when they first started the year. Um, and it's really concerning because I don't feel like Callaway was this bad last year with the bullpen. So why all of a sudden is he going bullpen crazy, bringing in Lugo? I mean, can, can someone tell him that he doesn't need to put Lugo in, in the game every single day? Um, I understand he's a great option to use, but he doesn't need to be in the game every single day. Um, so I am concerned a little bit that he might burn out this bullpen by April. I mean... One of the biggest concerns for the Mets has been the bullpen. They revamped the bullpen, but someone tell the guy not to break the bullpen before he even get a chance to really use them. Um, so I am a little bit worried about how uh, he's just using them at free will here and not really having a plan. I mean, how many guys does it take to finish off a game? Um, it really shouldn't be that hard. It should be 
two to three guys max, especially when you have guys like Syndergaard and DeGrom going seven innings. I, I shouldn't have to see five pitchers within the next two. Um, don't get bullpen crazy. You know, less is more. Um, so I'm a little bit worried that Callaway, you know, is going to do some damage to this bullpen before the season even really gets started. And last but not least, we have the Cubs. They're off to a slow start, too. They're 1-4 to start the year. A bunch of errors to start their home opener. It looked bad for a team that's usually pretty good on defense. Really not a big deal. But they are 1-4, and four, and the Brewers are off to a raging start. They're 6-1. and one. Nick, is it? should you worry or should you not about the Cubs, especially because the Brewers are off to such a hot start? So remember when I said I wasn't going to hit a panic button? And there isn't any real reason for concern. Where'd I put that panic button? Because I have to hit it here. Uh, highest bullpen ERA by far in a landslide. It's like over seven right now. Uh, highest starting pitching ERA. The, the only stats that look decent right now for the Cubs is they're, they're first in average going into today. Well, let's go over what the same issues show and did it change so far. They're down 7 nothing, So, nothing good has come from today for the uh, the Cubs down against the Braves, who also was having like really bad starting pitching and offense to begin the season. They were winless going into this series. Uh, you go in and you Darvish is throwing four innings and he can't get himself out of it. The bullpen featured Carl Everson, Tyler Chatwood, Montgomery, guys that were pretty decent. All of them have combined to give up four runs, uh, four hits, and then Darvish has given up three. They're not striking out, guys. They're walking a ton. It's pretty much equal between their walks and their strikeouts. Today, we're seeing the same thing. Six combined walks to five total strikeouts. This is a real concern for me, actually, when I look at the pitching staff and I'm not seeing anything by the team. And I like Kyle Hendricks. I really love that guy. I like John Lester. I like Cole Hamels. I like you, Darvish. Their pitching staff is really strong. Their bullpen is crap. But their team entirely on the pitching side have not put up the numbers to go far through these first six games. And that is a little bit concerning when there's no one that's picked up a baseball and thrown it successfully. Yeah, uh, to me, I'm a little bit worried, especially because of all the things you heard in the offseason about how this might be um, Joe Madden's last year with the Cubs. The Cubs may not want to pay him. Uh, the Cubs get rid of Chili Davis as their hitting coach. And to the Mets' advantage, they pick him up instead. Um, you know, this is a team that they weren't exactly that healthy last year. You know, Chris, can Chris Bryant stay healthy this year? And then on top of all that, your biggest division rival right now, the Brewers, we're off to a raging hot start. Christian Yelich looks, still looks like the MVP that he was last year. And on top of all that, this division is a lot better, too. The Cardinals are a better team than they were last year. The Reds, even though I you know, we don't, I don't consider them con- competing for the title this year, they're still better than they were last year. And the Pirates are always one of those good teams where they might be good and they might mess with you for a little bit, and they'll be good enough to compete. So the NL Central, from an on-paper standpoint is really stacked and the Cubs really can't afford to get off to a really poor start, especially when it comes to in their division. And especially when the Brewers off to such a hot start, yeah, you can pencil me in as concerned, especially since the team is playing so bad. And 
it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, bad start, and you know, go get it tomorrow. I mean, they've been playing bad for the past couple of games. Um, so, honestly, I don't really, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about the Cubs right now. And it's really sad considering I feel like the Cubs haven't had a giant window here where they, you know, they were the best team in baseball for a while. They won the World Series. But after that, it's really been just a lull for the Cubs. And they haven't really been as impressive ever since they won the whole thing. Last year, it was, okay, the Cubs are going to get going eventually, and they're going to run away with this division. And that was what we were saying for months upon months upon months. They still won 94 games, but for them to start off this way, uh, when they didn't make any ads and help to their team on the bullpen side, and they didn't really do anything this free agency uh, there there are some big concerns when it comes to the Chicago Cubs right now. Um, just because of the fact that Milwaukee looks very good and the Cardinals also look very good to start off the year. So I think there's more of a concern for me because of how good everybody else looks around that division. It is the National League. It can get out of hand pretty quickly with how many teams are competing in the National League for a possible playoff spots. And so you know, there, there is a lot of concern for me early on. Like I said, the one silver line is they come into this day where they had the highest batting average as a team. So the offense has been hitting the ball. They're not getting the runs, though. And they're certainly not getting the help on the mound at all. Moving on now to the last little bit of our MLB discussion here. Surprising start. So as we mentioned before, some teams have gotten off to um, some starts that we didn't think they would. The Rays are at 5-2 and two on the season. The Orioles are actually 4-3. and three. And the Mariners, yes, the Mariners are 7-1 and one to start the year. Nick, who has been the most surprising start so far? The Dodgers. At five. No, none of, I mean, obviously I'll take the 7-1 and one has been surprising. Who the hell sits back to Seattle to trade everybody and do well, especially when they've had to play against uh, the Red Sox? You figured the Red Sox were going to be able to, you know, a four-game series with the Red Sox, a two-game series with the uh, Oakland Athletics, two teams that won over 90-plus games last season, and they win five out of those six games. Obviously, Seattle, that's very impressive to start off the year 7-1, and one, uh, but, you know, I bet against that for lasting because it's just it's just so hard to believe him you know i'm actually gonna roll i'm gonna roll with the rays i mean obviously my jaw drops to watch the orioles have a winning record um my jaw drops to watch seattle go seven and one but for the rays i was really concerned about their pitching staff this year because you know after blake snell who do they really have their second best pitcher is charlie morton um, but this is a team that won 90 wins last year. They're out to prove that it wasn't a fluke. I think Kevin Cash is a really good manager, and they have a good system in place over there in Tampa Bay. Um, so they surprised me that they were able to get off to a hot start. And because they play in the AL East, because they have the Yankees and Red Sox in the same division as them, to me, for the Rays getting off to a hot start and the Yankees and Red Sox getting off to a slow start, this is what the Rays need if they want to jump ahead of the Yankees and or the Red Sox. Um you know, as the season goes further along, right? Because the Rays won 90 games and they didn't make the playoffs. Why? Because the Yankees and Red Sox won over 100. So if you're the Rays, you almost feel like you need this hot start in order to get over the bump, uh, over the hump uh, of trying to get past the Yankees and the Red Sox. So with that being said, Nick, are any of these teams going to hold up in 2019? 
between the Orioles, Seattle, and the Rays. Yes. Yeah, give me the Rays as a possibility. Don't be, af- don't be afraid up. to be bold. <laughs> uh, Baltimore's four and three, and they have a negative six on their run differential right now. Let, let's put that in perspective. Seattle is seven and one. They have a run differential of plus seventeen. Third best in the league. It's tied with the Phillies, who are only four and one, three less wins and three less games, and the Dodgers, who are five and two, have the highest at plus twenty-one. No, the Seattle's not going to last at that. Uh, and the Baltimore's at negative sits on run differential. So by the numbers, Baltimore's supposed to have one of the like over 500 records with a well over negative 50 run differential the rest of the season. That's never going to occur. Uh, Tampa's been impressive to start the season. Uh, Charlie Morton pitched pretty well in his first game. Blake Snell has pitched phenomenal uh, his first two games. It's going to be interesting to see how well. And, you know, one of the impressive things, I don't know if you've seen the video, but yesterday, Jose Avalardo. I don't know how he's not the closer officially yet, but he threw two pitches that were insane. Uh, this is one of those things where it's like, oh, it's just a pitch. This is one you have to check out. The 99-mile-an-hour two-seam fastball that had so much movement twice, and it's just like, how do you hit that? Well, you don't. Neither one of them could swing the bat at either one of those pitches. Uh, so he, if, if he's throwing like that, consistently for the season they got their lockdown bullpen closer yeah i agree i'm gonna have to roll with the rays as much as i want to say the seattle mariners i kind of like that they got off to the seven and one start um but there's no way that this team doesn't end up trading edwin or canarcion there's no way that they don't end up trading guys like domingo santana um they're gonna look for any opportunity to try and move guys as fast as they can as the season goes along so yeah I'm going with the Rays. I saw that guy's pitch. I showed my brother. He couldn't believe what he saw. I mean, uh, this Rays team could be something special, and I'm just glad that they got off to the hot start because, again, I feel like this is what they needed if they want to try and take down the Yankees and the Red Sox, right? Because, again, 90 wins last year, didn't make the playoffs. It's almost like they they needed a head start advantage to try and take down the Yankees and the Red Sox. Let's see if they can make it last um, and end up securing a wild card spot or something. So with that, that concludes the show. We're going to go into our usual segment now. If you haven't heard the show before, we do Beard Back, which is where we take a look back in sports history on this day. We also had Dude and Dunce of the Week. So, Nick, why don't you kick us off with our Beard Back for April 4th, 2019, or should I say April 4th in general? April 4th. Uh, So 1974, Hank Aaron ties Babe Ruth's home run record by hitting his 700th and 14th. 1986, Wayne Dresge sets the NHL record with 213th point of the season. No, we're talking about some of the greatest players right now. Uh, speaking of which, why don't we put basketball into this? 1989, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's last NBA game in Seattle. I was on the list for it all. And you know, for 1997, the Braves officially opened Turner Field. Now they got a little bit more of a newer stadium. And in 97, the Anaheim Dunts clinched their first playoff berth ever. Yeah, Charlie Conway. (laughs) (laughs) And with that now, it's going to bring us to Dude and Dunts of the Week. Nick, there certainly were a handful of candidates you probably could have chosen from this week. A lot of great performances on the court and on the diamond. 
and everywhere else in between. So who did you end up choosing for Dude of the Week? Well, it's always great when you're able to get a triple-double. It's always great when you can get a 20-20. Uh, but how about Russell Westbrook? 20-plus points, 20-plus rebounds, 20-plus assists. Only the second player ever other than Will Chamberlain to do so in a game. You knew he was going to wind up with our Dude of the Week. He just wound up with it before at times with his triple-doubles. But this one's certainly impressive. You know, I really hope Jacob DeGrom was a close second with his 14 strikeout performance, especially since I know he got you a lot of points in our fantasy league for that. Yes, he did. Uh, But so did Strasburg today as well. And for my dunce of the week, I'm actually going to choose Noah Syndergaard from today's game. If you didn't catch the Mets game from today, they lost by a final score of 4-0. to But I'm not giving him dunce of the week because they lost. I'm giving him dunce of the week for what he said after the game. If you don't know that the Mets came in from Miami last night, they didn't get back to New York until about 2.40-something in the morning uh, to then turn around and play a day game today. A lot of the players were complaining about the tight turnaround. And although I agree with them, I think it's dumb to make them play a 1 o'clock game, especially when they literally played a night game last night in Miami when it should have been a day game if that was the case. But you can't go out there and make excuses. They didn't look like themselves today. The offense looked really dead. And... Again, I get it. It's a good, valid reason, but don't go out there and start making excuses. Just go out there, take the loss, come back on Saturday, and be prepared to play again. So I do have a dunce of the week as well. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, Is it me? No, no. This one's important to mention. I I am giving it to the Milwaukee Brewers. Oh, okay. So when we did our last podcast episode, it was the first day of the season uh, on – and – very quickly after that, we got a couple days in, and Paul Goldsmith hit three home runs in the game. The Cardinals were up 9-5 to five going into the ninth inning. Only 16 players all-time in MLB history have hit four home runs in a single game. Well, at 9-5 to five into the top of ninth inning, Paul Goldsmith steps up to the plate with a chance at history. Rarer than a perfect game, folks. Not this no-hitter team no-hitter. Jose's talking about that never happened tonight. And they intentionally walk Paul Goldsmith when they're down by four in the ninth. No. Brewers, you dunce of the week. <laughs> you don't do that. You don't have any reason to do that. Uh, you, we can talk about, you know, you're not supposed to bunt down a perfect game. You're not supposed to walk the batter. At least let him swing. What's he going to do? Make it a, uh, a five-run d- game with three outs left to go, and it's like, now we can't come back. Just the, the the moment before you had as much of a comeback. No. Let the guy go for uh, history, something that even further than that. Instead, you walk him, and it just makes it just a normal day loss. Yeah, well, I can't argue with, there, with you there, though. However, you know, I don't think anybody's really thought about walking him, so it might not have been an unwritten rule that was never been discussed, so... We should bring that up at the next unwritten rule meeting. Well, there you have it. Dunce of the week. Not only do I have one in Noah Syndergaard, but Nick also has the Milwaukee Brewers for walking Paul Goldschmidt as well, too. And from avoiding him, or preventing him, I should say, from making history. All right, final thoughts now for episode 47. I'll start with my final thoughts. Um, first and foremost, congratulations to Thyro Estrada um, for getting called up to the New York Yankees for this weekend. 
or yeah, so I say for this weekend. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Nick and I both did Stand Out Yankee commentary for a couple of years while we were in college. And Thyro Estrada was actually one of the players that we saw often when he was in Staten Island. He was a really good player, um, really good guy. And, and Nick, it's always kind of cool to see these guys starting to get called up now. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. We were talking about that before we started recording for the podcast of all the different guys and where they're at now. Uh, so congrats to him. And a bunch of guys now are heading towards the AAA and to the MLB. So uh, best of luck to all of them as well. Uh, you know, Final thoughts for me. You spoke about it earlier. The Indians had a possible team no-hitter. Uh, no-hitters don't matter as much in baseball anymore. I'm going to take the unpopular opinion. They're fun, but I'm not going to jump for joy on a no-hitter alert. I'll wait till the perfect games. I'll wait for the three-plus four-home run games. Because the fact that it's no-hitters, there's over 300 of them now. And we had Matt's Freed have a no-hitter through six innings today. David Hess of the Orioles had a no-hitter through seven innings when he was pulled. It's It's just common now. They, bat, batters it's still, walk, it's still really impressive. Batters though. walk more. They don't put the ball in play as much, and they don't. Hit, and they just hit home runs. They strike out more often. And the fact is, I, I, no, I'm not going to give more respect to a no hitter when the game has changed entirely. Uh, that prevent a lot of base hits from mattering. Well, you know, Nick, you must be the life of every party with this kind of uh, uh, with this kind of attitude. <laughs> That's why there's house music over my voice. <laughs> uh, last but not least, also, I am going to my first Mets game of the year on Saturday when they take on the Nationals. Um, so if anybody wants an autograph, I'll be sitting in section 400-something. I'll be the guy with the beard. It's a bobblehead um, night, isn't clear. it? Huh? It's a bobblehead night, I think, on the That's six. why I'm going. It's Todd Fraser bobblehead day, or should I say it's WWE day, yeah. as he's holding up his WWE championship. Also, WrestleMania is this Sunday, so for all you wrestling fans out there, make sure you check out the wrestling podcast that I believe is featured on the S&D Podcast Channel. Am I right, Nick? Yes, you are. Uh, there was See? some also great stuff that John Oliver did on HBO about wrestling, so that was pretty entertaining. Yeah, you should really check that out. It's a really good weekend of all wrestling activities. Um, and, of course, the S&D Podcast Channel is your one-stop shop for everything. We got it all covered. There's no reason for you to go anywhere else. So no excuses why you haven't listened to any of the shows yet. So thank you guys so much for listening to Saraso on the Beard podcast episode 47. Once again, I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And I'm Nick Saraso. And thank you to the SND podcast channel. Make sure you continue to check it out. Have a great night, and we'll see you next time on episode 48.